Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. text, one thing is abundantly clear. Despite the struggle, despite the hardship, despite suffering, despite our failures over and over and over again, and despite very real persecution, when the church is at its best, there are two characteristics that absolutely set it apart. The one is love, genuine, generous, and sacrificial love. The other is an attitude of fierce and unwavering boldness. Today we're going to unpack these truths as they're taught very directly in these verses, but to make sure we're all on the same page, I I just want to recap very quickly what got us to this point in the story. The whole of chapters 3 and 4, all we've been working through these last four weeks or so, are really grounded in two significant events. First, this radical new way of life that we see the early church embracing straight after the miracles of Pentecost in chapter 2. And second, this incredible healing of the disabled man shortly after that. Remember, this man had been paralyzed from birth and would be found begging outside the temple every day. And he's 40 years old now, 40 years old Everyone knows him, if not by name, by reputation, at least by his appearance. And after 40 years of begging every day, he's suddenly and miraculously healed. He's able to walk. And so he accompanies Peter and John into the temple. Remember, at this stage, the church is still just Jews or people who've converted to Judaism. So they very much continue to live out their Jewish faith through the temple practice. Anyway, this guy, he follows them in trying out his new legs, he's leaping and jumping, the text says, and also says that he was clinging to Peter and John. The picture I have, have you ever seen a child lost in a supermarket? Um, and they finally find their parents, and you just see them run towards their parents, and just this, this kind of, this immense joy of relief as these tears start coming down the face. I think this is the relief that this man who was healed is experiencing. He just can't help but express himself loudly by clinging to these people. Thank you, thank you. And it's got people's attention. Now, it's rarely just about the miracle, is it? God suspends the laws of nature. That is, that is what happens in a miracle. Because he wants to say something. And in this instance, it's through Peter. Peter. Peter sees the opportunity and he stands up and he addresses everyone present, saying very diplomatically, you just killed the author of life. How would that go down? But he goes on to explain who this Jesus is to these masses of people coming in and out of the temple. But as Dan taught us last week, we see this other group of people intervene. They are angry, annoyed, frustrated. They seize Peter and John and they drag them into custody, keep them there overnight, and the next day they take them before the council. That word is Sanhedrin. Now, having grown up listening myself to all these stories as a kid, I kind of, it's easy for me to gloss over words like Sadducee and Sanhedrin and scribe with this view of, oh, they're just the religious 
bad guys of the day, along with the Pharisees, right? But I think this really misses a lot of the picture of what we're seeing in this passage. See, the Sadducees certainly did have a certain kind of set of religious beliefs, including the denial of the supernatural, the denial of resurrection. So when you were dead, you were just dead. Denial of most of the Hebrew Scriptures, apart from the Torah, the five books of Moses. But that wasn't what defined the Sadducees as a group. Because the Sadducees were a social clique. They were the aristocracy, a political party, a connected family and a religious sect all tied up together. They were the upper echelons of society. They were very much allied with Rome and as a result they held massive political persuasion. They were the ruling class of Jerusalem and its surrounds. And then there's the Sanhedrin. This was not exclusively Sadducees but it almost was. We'll come across one Pharisee, Gamaliel, in a few chapters, who kind of stands up for the early church. But he's really the exception to the rule because most of these people were Sadducees. The chief priests were almost all Sadducees. And the remainder of the Sanhedrin were largely Sadducees. A word that's used synonymously with Sanhedrin in the Greek is a word that we translate Senate. Right? So each city would have this group. They really just ran about just about everything. Not just religious life in the city. They were a council, they were a state government, they were a judiciary and a religious powerhouse all rolled into one. They could order punishments, imprisonments, floggings, not execution, that had to be done by Rome. But they came under the authority of Rome and ultimately the Roman appointed leaders would put their people into the Sanhedrin, including the high priest who acted really as the leader of this group. But Rome was happy for the majority of the local decision-making to be made by these senates. And these senates typically consisted between 40 and a few hundred different people. So Peter and John, they're not walking in before a religious council. They're walking effectively into a courtroom. There were probably 70 people in the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. They're all dressed up in their official robes, They're looking down, they're lined up, 70 people. And they're speaking with the authority of the temple and with the authority of Rome behind them. And Peter and John are fully aware that their lives are in the hands of these people. Can you imagine standing in front of 70 hostile and extremely influential people who have the power literally to destroy you? How would that feel? And so they were ordered to stop speaking and teaching the name of Jesus. And how do they respond? They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. This is a clear example for us of the right time for Christian civil disobedience. When you're told to do something that completely countermands the clear imperatives of the Christian life of obedience. Scripture makes it abundantly clear over and over again to obey our earthly rulers, but there are these exceptions. Now, it's not because I have an opinion. It's not even necessarily because of my personal conscience, but because the command is against the command of God. So this marked a change in the circumstance for the early church. Up until this point, we've seen favour, We've seen blessing, we've seen miracles, we've seen growth, but now the church for the first time meets serious opposition. So how are they going to respond? Let's find out. 
But as we come to the text itself, I know some of you just love an overview. I've never used a PowerPoint in a sermon in my life. But here it is. Boom. And it's even bigger than just two points. Um, but today's passage can be broken up into two sections. Handling opposition and a community on mission. Handling opposition is verses 23 to 31, and it's all about prayer. And a community on mission is verses 32 to 37, and we'll see what that's about in a second. But come with me to verse 23. When they were released, who who is they? It's Peter and John. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Literally, they went to their own people. Peter and John have just been before the Sanhedrin. They're likely still shaking with adrenaline. And they get back to their friends and they report what had happened. Over and over again, we see that the life of a believer is not one that can be lived in isolation. It's simply not. We need each other. This is the way God has designed his people. This is why we call the body of Christ, because every part of the body needs every other part. And we'll explore fellowship a little bit more in a few minutes. But let's look now at the response of the fellow believers. It says, and when they heard it, what did they do? They staged a protest and organized a petition. No, nothing wrong with those activities at times, but it's not what happened. You know, we want to jump up and down when we hear Christians being treated poorly in the media or in the court. But what was the response of the early church? They prayed, didn't they? Verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, So the first response is prayer. Prayer is an essential aspect of the life of the church. When we stop praying, we cease being effective in anything. The day we move on from undergirding everything with prayer is the day we move on from obedience to God and and a life of power and strength. Personally, for me, the discipline of prayer is something I struggled with for years. As a believer. But God's grace... And by the encouragement of believers, it's become a core part of who I am now. And it still needs a lot of work. Prayer is the bulk of your relationship with your Creator. How can we even say we know Him if we don't spend time with Him? But further, how are we ever going to be effective for His kingdom if we don't even spend time with the King of the kingdom? So prayer is absolutely the the right first response in the community of believers. But how do they pray? Verse 24, Sovereign Lord, they say, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This prayer of the Acts believers is a direct quote from David in Psalm 2. David gives some really clear indications uh, of prophetic psalms at times when he uses words like anointed. Anointed, which is translated in Hebrew as Messiah and translated in Greek as Christ. The psalm itself is basically describing a situation where the ruling people reject God's authority. So the parallels are crystal clear here. So it makes sense that they recognize the application under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and apply this passage to their own time and situation, doesn't it? Pilate was the Roman leader in Jerusalem. He was a Gentile, a non-Jew. 
Herod had some Idumean and some Jewish kind of connections by birth and marriage, um, and he tried to be Jewish, effectively, in, to an extent. He was in charge of the area of Galilee in the north of Jerusalem. Uh, but you remember, he was in the area in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Why? Because Passover was being celebrated. So he traveled down with the believing Jews to celebrate Passover. So the believers here are demonstrating what Psalm 2 predicted, that for the Christ, for the Anointed One, there would be opposition both from Gentiles, the nations, and from Israel itself. And so we see the pattern of the believer's prayer in the face of opposition, it starts to take form. After one, sharing the need, and that's our first point, sharing the need is the first response. They take the next step, which is recognizing the threat. See, these believers are making proper identification of Jesus with David as God's anointed. And now they are identifying themselves, or at least Peter and John, with Jesus. Do you know who else is anointed in New Testament times? We looked at this in 1 John maybe a few months ago. It's us. We are all anointed. Scripture teaches it crystal clear. And we're not Jesus. We're not the Messiah. But the, the disciples are identifying themselves with Jesus as Jesus identifies with David. Well, really, Jesus predicts David. Jesus is what it's about. We are emulating Jesus. Do you remember in John 15 what Jesus said? In verses 19 to 20, he said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, what? If they persecuted me, rather, they will persecute you also. So number one, they share the need. Number two, they recognize the threat. But then there's this really neat shift we see in verse 28, verse 27 and 28. So they've, they've, verse 27, they've said, you know, this is what's happening. It's the Gentiles, it's the people of Israel, and they're doing all these things, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Did you catch that? Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You mean to tell me it was God's predestined plan that all this suffering should be ours? Well, simply yes. That's exactly what I'm telling you. We are promised suffering over and over again, but more than that, we are promised that there is a purpose in the suffering. And especially there is a particular purpose in suffering for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Calvinists and Arminians alike agree that God's will is always done. That he coordinates and directs all things according to his perfect knowledge, as Wesley would say, by his meticulous providence, to bring about his perfect plans every time, without fail, no exceptions. God has already seen your future suffering and he knows how much it hurts you. He does. Even more, he knows the, the eternal value of suffering in accomplishing his will. And we catch glimpses of his plans, don't we? You know, we see people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Or we go to a prayer breakfast, like we did on uh, Thursday morning, 
with uh, the Lord Mayor of Newcastle. And it was funny, she told a story, uh, actually her and Rick Prosser, who um, organizes these every year, told a story that one of the first times they met up in her office and uh, there was a few church leaders there and they came along to Nuatali Holmes' office and, and they met about what the, you know, what the prayer breakfast was about and how they'd like her to be involved. And, and as they were going, they said, do you mind if we pray for you? Now, she's grown up, she's not a believer, she's grown up a, a Catholic, a kind of a nominal Catholic. She went to church sometimes with her grandma, she said. And uh, what she thought was, when you prayed, you did it at church. And so, sure, you can pray for me. They're going to go back to church and do their official prayer thing. And they said, okay, well, let's go. <laughs> and she's like, what? <laughs> like, now? You mean now? Uh, and they said, yeah, we want to pray for you now. And so they prayed for her there and then. Uh, another, another pastor from another church prayed for our mayor on the spot. And she loved it. She's still not a believer, but I think God's doing something with her, hey? And I think God will continue to do something in her life. This is when we see the eternal value breaking through. We see God's plans being laid out. Um, and she, this Lord Mayor, had nothing but good things to say about the church in Newcastle. So there's favour there. There's favour. That's the third point. We share our prayer needs. We acknowledge the threat before God, a real threat. And number three, we see God's perfect plans being worked out. And that leads us to the one request of this prayer. This whole section is a prayer. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God, will you, you will continue to work miracles, they're saying. You will continue to stretch out your healing hand, but would you grant your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness? This is challenging for the modern Christian, isn't it? Because our tendency is to want to, want to pray for safety, to want to pray for protection, to want to pray for safe harbor, to want to pray for all the pain to go away, for relief from suffering. But that's not what these believers pray for. Instead, they pray for boldness. It's challenging because we know what it means. That opposition will not necessarily stop. It's heavy for us to consider because it's so glorious. Because there is joy to be had in the fulfillment of God's calling on our lives as we obediently and boldly proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. What is crystal clear in Scripture is that there are times when God will call us to step out in boldness for the sake of His gospel. The question is where and when and how do you know? Many of you will have heard of a book called Pilgrim's Progress and many of you will know that that book was written by a fellow called John Bunyan back in the 1600s. Um, that book was the most widely read Christian book for a very long time outside of the Bible itself. It had a huge impact on the life of the church. What you might not know is that book was written from Bedford Jail, England. Bunyan lived see at a time in England where religious activity was heavily governed by the state. As someone who continued to preach the gospel without the official recognition of the state church at that time, he was targeted as a non-conformist and put in prison. Now, all he needed to do to get out of jail was to basically say, I will not preach ever again. That's all. 
He had four children to his, uh, to his previous wife who had died and his, his new wife was pregnant when he went into jail and had the four children and one of the children was blind. All he needed to do was say, I won't preach anymore and he could get back to his kids. 13 years he spent in jail, 13 years without his children, 13 years not seeing his children grow up, not being able to provide for his wife and children, 13 years and all he had to do was say, I won't preach anymore. But he couldn't do it. But he did say something about when it's right to stand up and be bold. And when it's okay not to. This is what he said in one of his books. He said, Having regard to sometimes being called to suffer, thou mayest do in this as is in thy heart. If it is in thy heart to fly, fly. If it is in thy heart to stand, stand. Anything but the denial of the truth. He that flies has warrant to do so. He that stands has warrant to do so. Yea, the same man may both fly and stand as the call and working of God with his heart may be. Moses fled, Exodus 2, 15. Moses stood, Hebrews eleven twenty seven. David fled, 1 Samuel 19, 12. David stood, 1 Samuel 24, 8. Jeremiah fled, Jeremiah 37. Jeremiah stood, Jeremiah 38. Christ withdrew himself, Luke 19. Christ stood, John 18. Paul fled, 2 Corinthians 11. Paul stood, Acts 20. There are few rules in this case, Bunyan continues. The man himself is best able to judge concerning his present strength and what weight this or that argument has upon his heart to stand or to fly. Now, I think he's correct in his summary, I do. Be bold, but also be obedient to God's timing. But let me also share from Philippians. This is Paul speaking to the Philippian church. He says in, in chapter 1, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So these are the steps of prayer. Number one, we share the need with each other. Number two, we recognize the real threat to us. Number three, we recognize God's power and plans. Number four, we pray for boldness. And the final part, number five, we receive God's confirmation. In this instance, it's quite dramatic. Now take note of this because this doesn't happen very often, even in the book of Acts. The book of Acts spans 30 years and there are about 30 miracles. That's about one miracle per year. Okay, we, we often read this book thinking the miracles happen all the time and we should expect the same. Miracles do happen, people, but not as often as we might think from reading the book of Acts. But this, in this instance, at this early stage in the, in the life of the believers, remember these guys were already bold. They were already bold. They are being persecuted and they are praying for more boldness. What does God do? God honors their boldness. God shows up in a miraculous way. It says in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There's a clear parallel here, isn't there, between the Pentecost experience in Acts chapter 2. You can see it. People are being filled with the Spirit again. The grammar is clear. It's not talking about something that happened in the past and is once and done. There is a one there is a once-off episode with the Spirit. It's called the indwelling of the Spirit. Okay, that happens once in your life. When you commit your life to the Lord, you are indwelt with the Spirit, and it regenerates. He regenerates you. This is a once-for-all experience. But there is something else that will continue to occur in Acts over and over again, where people who've been believers for years sometimes and have already experienced the indwelling experience either another filling or another baptism of the Spirit or, an, or a coming upon of the Spirit. This is the language that Acts uses. And it's so often about proclaiming the Word of God that we see the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is something we should expect as believers. We are indwelt, but at times God will fill us with His Spirit. Now, some of you might be asking, well, why isn't this happening for me? And I suppose my answer would be, number one, are you putting yourself in situations where you need the Spirit to fill you? And number two, if you are doing that, are you recognizing that the move of the Spirit is happening in those circumstances? But there are three parallels between the story here and Acts 2. The filling we've just seen, number one. Then two are these physical and public confirmations of the Holy Spirit moving in power. In chapter 2, you remember it was this mighty wind that came, and here it's the ground shaking. And the third parallel is the rest of this passage. It's the impact that this kind of attitude, prayer and experience of God will happen on the fellowship of the believers. So, we need to be stepping out in boldness more and more. Honestly, how do you reckon we're going with this as individuals, as a church? I think there's room for improvement, do you agree? I know there is for me. There have been times, and uh, I was talking with Kendall a few weeks ago about this filling of the Holy Spirit, something that I hadn't thought a whole lot about, but I have a, I have a very um, real sense that God is doing something in me when I share the gospel. Okay, and I'm thinking maybe, maybe that's a gift for evangelism that's not being expressed as much as it should be. But when I share the gospel with people, when I genuinely share the gospel, there is a very real sense in which I, I have a, a feeling, um, a tangible feeling of the Holy Spirit with me, of God with me, speaking through me, helping me to say things that otherwise I would have difficulty even saying clearly. Let me tell you a story of a, a lady called Nola who was a patient of mine when I was a resident was quite a few years ago. Um, she, was, uh, she had lung cancer with metastases to the brain uh, and it wasn't curable. She was in hospital because she'd become really ill because she'd stopped eating uh, because she was depressed. She was also estranged from her family and uh, was really struggling. Uh, she kept on pulling her NG tube out, which is the feeding tube that we use. And so every day I'd have to put a new NG tube uh, in this lady because she just didn't want to live anymore. Not because it was painful, it wasn't. Not because she was suffering particularly, she wasn't really, but because she was depressed. 
Um, in the medical world, if someone wants to stop treatment and it's reasonable to do so and they're in their right mind, it's, that's a reasonable medical decision to make. It's an ethical decision to make. Even for Christians, we agree that that's reasonable. To, to, not to, um, to kill someone, but to let nature take its course. Um, but in this instance, she was not in her right mind. She was highly depressed. Um, and I had to... I was the resident. I was the most junior person on the medical team. And the feeling was just to let her go. Uh, and I had to kind of make a case that I don't think that was the right thing to do. I had to stand up for what I thought was the right thing, which was we need to help this lady in her mental health, and then she can make a decision about what she does with her physical health. And... Um, so I involved palliative care. There was actually another believer on the palliative care team who came over and fully agreed. Uh, they said, you know, that you've absolutely picked that up and we need to improve her mental health. And we tried to do that and she perked up a little bit. Um, as she got sicker, she was coming in and out of consciousness a little bit. I had one or two opportunities to speak to her. I was obviously spending a lot of time with her. I'd spend my lunch breaks with her, um, with Nola. And I got to share the gospel with her. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do in a hospital, in a public hospital, because there is a, f a real fear of ridicule. Uh, and in a lucid moment, she heard the gospel and she responded. Uh, and she was able to pray with me to receive, to receive Jesus for the first time. Now, she did not get miraculously healed. And she, uh, it didn't fix all of her problems. She was still depressed, um, but she had been estranged from her family for 20 years. And after talking through with her, she let me get in contact with her family. And her family came up from Sydney, uh, and they were coming up to see her as I was finishing my term and moving to Taree. And um, she continued to get sicker after that and ended up passing away. The way I found out she passed away because I got a phone call one day when I was in Tari Hospital on the paediatric ward and the switchboard called me and said there's a person here who wants to talk to you. I said who are they? I said I don't really know but they're really clear they want to talk to you and it was Nola's son and uh, turns out he was a believer <laughs> and he had come to faith after being estranged from his mum. They couldn't contact they didn't know where she'd gone uh, but he just wanted to ring to say how grateful he was because it had revolutionised the relationship between him and his mum in, just in, the, in, the, in, the, in the dying weeks. This is the power of the gospel to bring reconciliation. But not only reconciliation, but eternal life. We will see Nola in heaven, I'm sure. Okay. So... Not through my own strength, but I, I, should have, I should have many more stories. I don't have many more stories. But there was a moment of boldness. I've seen maybe three or four patients on their deathbed come to faith in Jesus. She was the first, um, mostly in my resident years. Uh, but this is what happens when we step out in boldness and share the gospel. Stuff happens. We need to be bold more often. We need to be bold more often. So we come to section two, a community on mission. This is 32 to 37. We'll see these three key aspects of the community on mission, unity, 
of the believer's testimony and radical sharing. Again, it perfectly parallels the kind of community we see in Acts chapter 2. So read with me verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The way this passage flows is interesting, I think. It's like it's saying that the result of boldness for the gospel is unity. The result of boldness for the gospel is unity. We can get so caught up arguing about peripheral things, but when we're on mission, we have unity. The unity here is described of them as being of one heart and soul, the heart being that the volitional part of the human, the part where someone makes decisions and the soul really being the whole person, but especially the thinking part. So the thoughts and their, and their choices are unified. I'm kind of reminded of that movie Band of Brothers. We watched the, the miniseries together when we were um, actually early Calvary Chapel days, the men's group. That's what, that was our men's group activity. <laughs> it was pretty violent. Uh, but it, this, this picture of people really having each other's back in hostile territory, achieving a mission. People are getting shot, people are dying, but these guys are sticking together. It's set in the Western Front World War II. And this is the picture. These people have one heart and soul. And we'll talk more about this approach to property and sharing in a second. We'll get there again in a few verses. But verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. This is the testimony of a healthy community. The apostles are continuing to share about the resurrection of Jesus and all that this means. But this flows from a healthy community. Grace here, according to the biblical scholar Craig Keener, he says it's probably the empowerment of God for the entire community. And this idea of testimony is really sandwiched in here between what are two great descriptors of the healthy community, unity and radical sharing. So let's look at this kind of sharing. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Thus we see the Spirit is moving people to give up what they have at this particular time for the sake of his gospel. Now this is not socialism. We talked about this with Acts chapter 2. It is not espousing a particular particular political system. It's really not. It's not even an imperative for the church today. But in the context of Scripture, contrary to what I've heard others teach on this passage, it is considered by the author Luke very obviously to be a good thing. And that's despite the fact that Luke knew about the famine that would come to Jerusalem later on in the history of the Acts church. But we're also introduced here to this wonderful character, Barnabas. We're going to continue to see his journey in coming chapters. But needless to say, Luke is establishing his character credentials here since he's going to be introduced very soon and we're a very influential person in the life of Paul the Apostle. But note a few things here in verse 31. It says that no one considered the things that belonged to him to be his own. So already we have this acknowledgement of the ongoing nature of private property. People still own stuff in the Acts church. The likelihood is that those who were selling lands were selling from their excess, not giving their primary homes away, and they weren't doing it all at once. The grammar suggests here that as the need arose, those that had excess 
could sell an asset and contribute it to the fund. This was unusual at the time, but it's not as unusual as it seems now to us. Since we live in a world of fierce individualism, we don't even share with our own parents. But at this time, it was not unusual to share with your family from your excess. So really what it's saying is these people were being family together. They were being family together. So what's the application for us here and now? We need to be willing to hear God's intent on this. I don't think it's anything resembling communism. We don't want you selling your assets to put into the church account. Honestly, the financial needs of this group of people here are nothing compared to the financial needs of a person in first century Palestine. But we still have needs. Sure, some are financial, things cost things as a church, but what this passage demonstrates is an intense willingness to sacrifice comfort or excess for the sake of the church family. A willingness to sacrifice comfort or excess for the sake of the church family. This, I think, is what we can learn from it. And remember the stakes? It's our witness. It's our witness. This should be a great motivation, I think, for us, Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, to maintain the health of our fellowship through the giving of ourselves to one another in service and in mutual encouragement. It's as we seek each other's well-being that our witness grows. So the question is, are you serving the body? It's not a spectator sport. The Bible teaches the priesthood of all believers. So what, what you are doing to care for your brothers and their sisters and the kids is serving the church is obedience. But how are you serving? What are you giving up? And honestly, I feel like I'm preaching to the converted. <laughs> because I look around this room and I see a mass of people who just serve. But what I, what I do want to say to you is keep going. It's not in vain. It's not unimportant. It has eternal significance. One final thing to say about John Bunyan and his boldness is he, he notes that what comforted him greatly as he was locked up in prison was the knowledge that his, his wife and his four children, five children, were being cared for by his church family. This is where we see a strong tie, I think, between the two main thrusts of this passage today. Living a life of radical, generous, sacrificial love towards one another will multiply our ability to live a life of boldness. Not only that, but we must remember Jesus' words to us. This then is how people will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you bear one another. It's from the overflow of our love towards one another that evangelism gets its teeth. And looking back on the context that brought us here, we have details of what transpired within the Sanhedrin meetings, don't we? We have these details when the disciples weren't present. Have you ever wondered how we got those details? little spoiler alert here, but if you want to jump forward to Acts 6-7, you'll see this little phrase tucked away in the narrative. It says, many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So it actually looks as if this strategy of love and boldness works. And it works with some of the toughest nuts to crack. Who is that in your life? Who is God calling you to reach out to with boldness? But let's remind ourselves that we do it together. We do it with each other's backs. We've got each other's backs. We go with boldness. We will fail sometimes. We will be, we will be ridiculed. 
at times. That is mostly the extent of our persecution, although it's getting harder. But we have each other's backs. We look out for each other. So here's the challenge for this week. How do we deal with opposition when it comes? Let's go through those steps of prayer. How are we going to live how do, we go, how do we live out our call to service within the church? And how do we increase our boldness with people outside the church? So things to ponder. Let's pray as we wrap up. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your kindness to us, for your goodness, for each other. Lord, we thank you for um, the life that you've called us to of mission and ministry. Ministering to one another and mission to a dying and lost world. Lord, we ask that as you... Lord, as you lead us by your Holy Spirit, um, that you would create opportunities for us to speak with boldness. Lord, that we would respond to the promptings of your Spirit as as we do that. Lord, that we would respond with boldness, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that you would help us to see a harvest of people coming into your family, into your kingdom. uh, And that we would support one another as we do this exact thing Lord, thank you for your kindness, for your mercy. That means even if we have failed in this, which we all have, that uh, you continue to call us, you continue to use us, you continue to lead us into what you have for us. Go before us this week. Be with those who are sick, Lord. Just bring them to wellness. And, um, and just bless this, this family of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.